Back from a week on the road, Chicago, Illinois, where I am calling in from. Brad, of course, calling in from Massachusetts near the Rhode Island border. We recorded the last episode in January of the CWB Central Pod. Brad, you and I were in the same place over the weekend for the second time this season, which is very rare. This podcast rarely has in-person meetups. Probably could have thrown like a whole whole get together for all the Providence fans, but uh, yeah, there was there was plenty there was plenty else keeping everyone uh, keeping everyone locked in over the weekend for the Providence Georgetown spectacle, as Brad has often referred to it. Finally, in the rearview mirror, Providence wins after struggling a little bit in the second half. Things got a little dicey for a second, but they uh, they do hold on. They do win uh, a game that was a very unique college basketball atmosphere. Um, obviously, I'm I'm curious for your perspective. Obviously, like how different the dunk was that day, or the amp, whatever it is. Um, the dunk the dunk was that day versus a regular Providence game. Uh, the only other Providence game I've been to was students not on campus, so it's a little bit different. You know, I think it's a great atmosphere. It was really fun. Uh, the game did feel like such a sideshow for most of it, but like you just, it wasn't like a tradition. Like like Mackey Arena is like a, it is like an engaging effort to be part of the crowd there. You have to like be on top of the the thing. Whereas at, at Providence Georgetown, it was just like a whenever you get a chance, like hurl explosives at Ed Cooley. Um, so much so that, like, you know, like my favorite moment was the um, when Epps hit the three to go up three with like five on the shot clock. They like get inbounds play, side out, tie game, two minutes, three minutes left. And the student section's chanting, like, F at Cooley. And the guys, like, how do we get stopped? But yeah. uh, all's well that ends well for, for the Friars, I suppose. No, it was a very chill game with just like a spike of terror. Yeah, there was never really a feeling that you were going to lose, right? When Epps hit that three, though, I was like, uh, <laughs> wait. Because <laughs> first, I'm worrying about the Ken Palm and the net and everything, because uh, we were up 12. And then at, as we do, we just waste so many possessions with just inept offense. Um, and give, you know, Masood credit, give Epps credit. Supreme Cook was awesome. Um, and, and, Georgetown battled, and I was petrified. And then they literally threw the ball to Devin Carter like three separate times. Um, and then Jay, Jay Heath with like the softest flagrant foul, which he didn't make a play on the ball. So I think it was technically a flagrant foul, but like Devin Carter made the shot. Well, <laughs> the, the F1 was funny because there was initially the F1 earlier in the half when Carter got like kind of hit in the head and Kim sprinted onto the court. And he got teed up for sprinting on the court, and then there was an alternating F1 on, I think it was Masood, um, yes. for, like, hitting him in the head. And then, and I was like, when I saw it live, I was like, there's no way that was a, fr- a flagrant, like, whatever, and then I called it. When I saw the second one live, I was like, that's absolutely a flagrant, because he just, like, you know, like bear hug, bear hug, which you can't do. Um, but it seems from Twitter that people had the opposite reaction, that they thought the Masood one, they're like, okay, that's a flagrant. You know, even like the Georgetown fans, and the second one, they were like, "That's not a flagrant." But what did you think live? I because I didn't see replays, so I don't. I put this in my group chat, and I think I texted you too. Like, I have no idea what the hell is happening, but it's good for the net. Um, <laughs> the first one I saw Carter get hit, the the Jay Heath wrapped up one. I'm like, I don't, <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. But yeah, to to the chance. It's funny because I. 
I, I was talking about the Let's Go Duke, Come On, famous yeah. Coach K video. Um, and so I, 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 I found the video on YouTube, and he starts by being like, this is the first half of an ACC game, and we're chanting the other coach's name? Like, what are we doing? It's <laughs> like, Coach K, I got something wild to tell you. <laughs> what if I told you there was a heated rivalry uh, Big East game in the last three minutes we're chanting F. Ed Cooley? Um, which, yeah, for, for how it compares to other games, pretty much similar to the Jay Wright-Villanova games. You know, people will get there super early. But people would chant, fuck you, Jay Wright, which I never understood. I'm like, what What the hell are these people talking about? Um you know, maybe once or once or twice a home game, you know, for, for the Villanova Providence game. Um, and, and I guess it was similar to maybe the Creighton game where they clinched the Big East re- regular season. But yeah, you know, the attendance has been super strong the past three years. Um, this was obviously a sellout and had the extra vulgar chance. The chants usually aren't super vulgar. Um, yeah. I, I thought it was wild, and I'm glad a lot of people have mentioned this. That the media, like mostly Jeff Goodman, uh, was giving Providence fans credit for like not attempting an assassination. <laughs> like, for, props to them, no, no criminality. Uh, but yeah, uh, the the one chant that I was listening to both Goodman and Matt Norland, Matt Norlander on their separate pods today. That they were like so offended by that they wouldn't even mention on their podcast was that the fans were chanting "Where's your mistress?" a couple times. Um, I didn't think it was I think that it was bad. That's like we like, can't even repeat it. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I've not taken the mistress thing super seriously this whole time. I don't care. Um, but anyway, the whole thing is ridiculous. I mean. The, that that also spawns into an entire other conversation about this documentary, Divine Providence, that has caused like a massive Twitter uproar in the last 24 hours. Um, that I still quite honestly don't really understand. Um, I, I get the gist of it. Uh, my my read as someone who is somewhat in the Goodman Felix C.K. family, but also you know has some level of objectivity, is like basically this documentary. Like, it wasn't made clear to everyone who participated in the documentary that, like, there was going to be a big section about, like, this affair, and there was, you know, this, this whole, like, it was, you know, you were interviewing for, you just knew you were interviewing about Cooley taking Georgetown, and so to then have your work presented side by side with that um, is, with perhaps a, a concern for some members of the media, Um it was crazy that this was made by a DePaul fan. It wasn't even made by a Providence fan. It was wild. Wild. Yeah, the fact that Blue Demon Degenerate was Big East Films was crazy. But yeah, I mean, the, the, big, the big issue is that Big East Films was like a... It made, made the... It kind of made the... It kind of made them look bad. Like, it, it made the league look bad. You can't have, a, you can't have something called Big East Films make the league look bad. Right, and you know, I, I'm just so, so done with all the affair rumors and, and, and all that stuff. That's just, I mean, who cares? For, you know, for, for the love of God. Um, but yeah, the fact that Jeff Goodman was clearly um, 
trying to protect Cooley. I don't think Cooley put him up to it. I don't think he was doing it for Cooley. I think he was doing it for Fana. Really? Yes. Um, because I honestly don't think Cooley really cares. Yeah, and if you read the awful announcing article, uh, which is an account that has 300,000 Twitter followers, put out an article about this incident this afternoon. At the end, it was like, it's unclear what Jeff Good- what made Jeff Goodman so upset. And I just, you know, he's, just fr- he's friends with Cooley and he, you know, but, but I, I, I guess it could be Fanta's role in the documentary. But people who watch it told me Fanta wasn't, you know, involved in the craziness or anything, but I guess just being in the mix. No, I, the way I perceive it is it's like a bait and switch, right? Like, like if you told me, like, 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 like Fanta by being in it is granting legitimacy to those rumors. And then we, we the whole thing with lawsuits and what's slander, what's not slander. Uh, pe- the people who claim to be lawyers on Twitter seem to think there was no case for slander. Uh, my 15 minutes of Googling, I was like, ooh, maybe these guys are in trouble. Um, but I guess not. Um, and Goodman thinks that you can go to jail for a civil case, which even I knew I'm before sure my 15 minutes of Googling that that's not true. My perception is that he's joking. But either way, um, let's move on from the Providence. I my hope was that that game ending would mean we could stop worrying about Ed Cooley for a while. But we're back. It, it, it was it was funny because I saw one of the Georgetown accounts tweeted after the game like Providence, no one's gonna mention you guys in the national conversation ever again. <laughs> it's like, well, guess what happened 24 hours later? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, nothing to say. I, I mean, Providence did not look good, and I'm very worried moving forward. Um, I mean, they just the Friars are in the field. Oh yeah, how how is the bracket show? I'll 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 listen tomorrow at work, but the Friars are in the field. That's all I can tell you. Okay. Yeah, I am host, I'm I'm helping host the Field Sixty bracket show. Twice a week, me and Greg Waddell are hosts. We have Brad Wachtel, um, Andy Bottoms, Rocco Miller, and Lucas Harkins as our bracketologists. It's a good show. Appreciate anyone who tunes in, gives us a, a listen. Um, yeah, by all means, please please check us out. But there's a whole week of basketball, so we should get into some of the uh, nuts and bolts of what happened. Let's just talk Saturday. I know, Brad, obviously our days were a bit um, ripped up by the Providence game. But I think probably the most notable game was the fact that um, Iowa State beat Kansas. And Iowa State, I think, has probably established itself as like some form of a Big 12 title contender, despite all these like weird sign-stealing rumors and whatnot. Um, that's a whole other thing. Oh my goodness. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. This is the this is such a weird time of year where like the games matter, but like it doesn't feel like it's life or life or death or not. But like we have all these controversies. Like all we're all, all anyone's worried about is like the carousel and sign stealing and Cooley. I was like, can we just like take a breath and like watch Houston versus Texas? I mean, Iowa State. I mean, they're similar to Houston, right? They're a team, you're like looking at the roster and you're like, 
this is my top 10 team in, in the T rank. Like, is this team really that talented? But they, they got old dudes. They got, um, you know, great size inside. They have a great defense. And the, the big difference maker is Tame Ellipsy. Um, who, who I'm not sure if he's back yet. I think he's back, right? Um, yeah, he's back. He 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 went from a Dewan Harris last year to like a all around go to best player this year. Yeah, I mean, look if you, if you, if you really look at Iowa State, the difference is that the last two years they've been a outside the top 100 offense and a top 10 defense, top five defense. And this year they're a top five defense, but they're 51st in offense. And uh, I think that's a few different things. I think that's Lipsy's emergence 100%. Um, Keyshawn Gilbert has also been really good. Like they've had, they've had enough guard play. They have just enough shooting. Thanks to Milan Momchilovic, uh, who's over, you know, over 40% now, 42 for 103 on the year has made some really big shots. Um, and then I think the probably most underrated piece for this Iowa state team that hasn't gotten really much of any love or discourse is Trey King. Who's just been around forever, big six seven, six eight, skilled forward, was you know at one point going to Georgetown, I believe. Yes, and then it's a huge that, get for Georgetown. Yes, for you for Ewing, had that blow up, enrolls mid year at Iowa State, had an, it made an impact, but you know I, I think you kind of just settled in as he was like a you know role player, and you know he has not been a superstar for them but just gives them another like scoring weapon, right? Like when you're playing the style of game that they play, you just need enough. You just need different guys to be able to step up on different nights. And, you know, he has spaced the floor for them in the last couple of games, made four threes against Kansas. That was, you know, a bit out of character for him. Uh, but, you know, that, that, those are huge contributions. He's just a little bit more skilled at that power forward position. So you're not giving up stuff athletically. You're not giving up stuff size-wise. He's been he's been really really good. So um, yeah, I, I like this Iowa State team. I, I I honestly think the Big Twelve is just in such an interesting position right now because like who like like who who do you think is the best team in the league right now? Because Texas Tech's in first. They're probably I gotta say one. Houston. I, mean, I got to say Houston, but it's the same thing. I'm like, you're, you're telling me that my number one seed, the best player, is LJ Cryer, like Jamal Shedd? Like, right. you serious? But, I mean, they just rebound at such a relentless level. Like, Juwan Roberts, who's filled out a lot uh, from last year, and Francis and Tugler. I mean, that's 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 the difference is they, they just crush people. Um, I just so, so so my thing with Houston is this: against any team that they're like substantially better than, you have no chance of beating, right? Like they are completely upset proof. I guarantee, and this is probably a mistake. I guarantee Houston will not lose as a one seed or a two seed in the NCAA tournament in the first round, right? And they probably won't lose to the eight seed, right? But when they play high-level teams, right, when teams can match them athletically more specifically, they just feel so beatable because the talent level stops being such a big 
big gap. And I mean, a lot of that is turnover rate. I mean, if you look, Houston is setting you know, is, is is historically good at forcing turnovers, at least at like the high major level. Them and Iowa State are both forcing like insane amounts of turnovers. And when you play, you know, it's one thing to do it against K State. We turned it over 18 times, or it's you know it's one thing to do it against Texas, you know West Virginia, whatever. But like when you play a team with point guard play, and you play Iowa State, Iowa State turns it over 12 times. It gets a lot harder for Houston. So I agree that Houston is the quote unquote best team. They're the team that probably wins the regular season title just because I think they'll be consistent. But like, who's the team that you trust most in March? I don't think it's. Houston, is it? It's got to be Houston because it's certainly not Kansas. Who now Johnny Furphy against Cincinnati on Monday? He was great, uh, but you're still just getting so little from Jackson and Timberlake. You know, everyone says, "Oh, Kansas has a big four. Kansas has a big four. Two of the big four are defensive role players, right? And you know, Kansas does have the UConn win. I'm not sure if Klingon played in that game. I did watch that game. That was so long ago. Um, he did play against UConn, yeah. Or against and, 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 and that, that was their, their, their best win. That was a close um, close home win when Cam Spencer d- didn't shoot well and had a nagging injury himself. But um, I think we're seeing in Big 12 play that they're susceptible, certainly on, on the road. Um, and so they're 4-3, and three and everyone remembers the TCU game. Um where Ernest Uday got called for that wacky flagrant that gave Kansas the game. Um, so they could be in, in, in an even worse spot. The one thing you like with Kansas is that Furphy's coming along. 15 points against Iowa State on the road. He had 23 and 11 against Cincinnati. He's now scored in double figures four straight games. He's had two Ken Palm MVPs in that stretch. Like, he is playing at a high level, shooting the ball from three. It is remarkable. I mean, this guy completely fell out of the sky, and it's now like a blue blood starter and potential first round pick. This yeah, time uh, last year, Johnny Furphy was being shopped to like the Patriot League. Yeah, on on the twenty four seven podcast preseason, they said, yeah, Furphy was a twenty twenty three recruit who, like, even some mid majors were like, I don't know. He reclassifies to twenty twenty four. He plays another round of AAU, and he explodes to be like a top fifty pick. So, sorry, a, a top top 50 recruit moves back into 2023, goes to Kansas, now starting on Kansas over a guy in Nick Timberlake who everyone was sold on, a guy in El Marco Jackson who was in preseason lottery pick of, you know, in the mock drafts. Um, and and he, he's got the size. Kind of reminds me of last year having Grady Dick at that spot, um, having all those versatile forwards you know, with Jalen Wilson, McCuller, and Dick last year. Two through four. Um, now, now they have e- even more size of the two here with McCuller. And you know, Furphy's playing great, and they have two All Americans in McCuller and Dick- in a Dickinson. But it still just feels it feels tenuous. Right. My but my the, concern my concern would be why is it that Furphy's broken through? You have your fifth starter, and it hasn't translated to wins. And part of it is shooting, right? Like, look, I mean. You play West Virginia, they go 12 for 21 from three. Tough to win. You play Iowa State on the road, they shoot 14 for 30 from three. Tough to win. Right? Really hard. And maybe that's covering some of the 
you know, positive stuff that Kansas has going right now. But I just, I just, I think from the jump, right? I mean, and you were first to this. I give you a lot of credit. Like Kansas does not, they just, they, they don't have the juice of like a title type team. Like there's a level that title teams reach. They have not shown that level. And we also said that last year. Oh, this Kansas team doesn't look as good, and they were a one seed. And I said it the year before. Um, you know. I, when uh, Providence was in the Sweet 16 against Kansas, I was so pumped. I said, "This is the one seed I wanted to play." You know, in, in, in our region, David McCormick doesn't scare me. Remy Martin doesn't scare me. They win the national championship. Last year, you're saying, "No, they can really use David McCormick. He'd be the missing piece." Um, and look, I, I'm like half joking here, but if I'm Bill Self, I just bench. Dewan Harris until he starts taking offense seriously. Like he turns down so many good looks. He's ne- he's so rarely aggressive. I'm saying, look, we're we're gonna run out there with El Marco Jackson scoring zero points at point guard until you look at the basket. And every time he turns down an open look, put him on the bench. Is there anyone else in the Big Twelve that you feel like has a legitimate shot? Like can't like Texas Tech, they've now won. 11 of 12, um, you know, part of that is schedule. But, you know, play, you know, shooting the ball in an extremely high clip. In league play, they're shooting 39.8% from three. Uh, Pop Isaacs is an elite shot maker. Toussaint getting downhill. Chance McMillan off the bench. Kerwin Walton is shooting 51% from three. Leads the nation in offensive rating. Um, I mean, no, no one ever denied that Kerwin Walton could shoot. Really it is that. wild that, like, I mean, obviously, Grant McCaslin. I think, I think it should have been more, um, more known to people that Grant McCaslin was going to change how he played at Texas Tech. Um, and he lost his defensive guy in Ross Hodge, who stayed at, you know, to be the head coach of North Texas. Uh, he also made some smart hires. He hired uh, Dave Smart, who was the longtime head coach at Carleton in Canada, did a tremendous job. Do um, they've changed the way they play from where, you know, what they were at? Um, at North Texas. But, I mean, this is a top 20 offense and a defense outside the top 60. I mean, Graham McCaslin, the last three years, has had top 50 defenses at North Texas. The last two, he's been top 25. So they're taking a step back there, but offensively, they've been so good, and they play a little faster, a little more skilled. Um, they're really good. Um, the next three are interesting at TCU, home Cincy, at Baylor. Got to probably win one of the two road games if you're, like, a le- real title contender. But they do have a game on everyone so far at five and one, so that'll be interesting. Baylor at three and three lost the triple overtime game at TCU for their third straight loss. Not ideal, obviously. Um, you know, it just feels like defensively Baylor has just kind of come and gone. Um, did not defend very well against Texas. Gave up 1.27 points per possession. Um, did not defend very well against TCU. Gave up 1.17 points per possession. You know, the K-State game was better, but you know, K-State has not been very good. Um, like they're just not like like they're just not consistent. Like they're a good team. Their guards are special. Walter can obviously really shoot and make plays, but I you know it, it has been a little bit streaky. And even like I mean, Eve Misi had a big game against TCU, but he has not been consistent. Right. I think you saw some of the performances against Duke and Michigan State. You're like, oh, here it comes. And 
you know, he's had zeros. He's had, you know, he had four points against Cincinnati. He had seven points against Texas. Like he's he's a freshman big. It happens. I think they've they've struggled with that. And I just, you know, like there doesn't feel like there's like this elite level of team in the Big Twelve that there's been in the past. Like I don't know that I think the league is worse than it's been in the recent years, but I think the top feels weaker. Other than Houston, who's kind of like, you know, obviously hasn't even been in the league. I have, I have three thoughts. Okay. First on Texas Tech. If you run T-Rank from when Devin Cambridge was out for the season, sure. which is December 7th, they are 10-1, fifth in offense, 127th in defense. That's wild. Now, if you look at the full season, take off the filter. They're 13 in offense and 86 in defense. So losing your most athletic wing defender, predictably, and replacing him with Curran Walton, one of the best shooters in the country, who's also defensively challenged, predictably tanked the Texas Tech defense and made the offense incredible. Kind of surprising. You know, they still have the seven-foot rim protector, Warren Washington. Toussaint and Daring Williams are at least in theory, capable defenders. Um, but that has been the result of the Cambridge injury. Then on Baylor, uh, they just knocked me out of an eliminator challenge. I had them this week against TCU. I'm done. Um, my, my, my three losses were Penn State versus Bucknell, Texas A&M versus LSU, and now Baylor versus TCU. Triple overtime. Cr- crazy game. Uh, <laughs> there was... Uh, I don't know, I don't remember which overtime this was, but there was like a, a 10 second call, which, I mean, like B- Baylor lost a possession in one of the overtimes by not getting the ball over half court, um, so that kind of loomed large. And as 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 you mentioned, the freshmen were not as strong uh, for Baylor, and then the Big 12 as a whole. I get why people say it's overrated. Because a lot of these teams smartly didn't play anyone in the non-league, knowing they were going to have this beast of a league schedule. But I think it's undeniable that it is incredibly deep. Like There are 11 teams that are legitimately both resume and aesthetically tournament quality. I guess you could quibble on Kansas State. Uh, but then Central Florida at 12 is, is, is good. You know That's a good, solid team at number 12. Um, that that depth is unparalleled. It just seems that a lot of these teams are probably aesthetically like eight or nine seeds that are going to get lifted by the strength of the Big 12 to be like five or six seeds. But then from a national perspective, when you're doing out your bracket, your your bracketology, after the top six teams, you have no idea where to go. And you still have Kansas as a two, and you have Marquette as a two, and Creighton as a three. And you're putting Iowa State as a two. You know, you're just going crazy um, because there's just not a, a great tier two or tier three, whatever you want to call it, of teams. Um, there is very little separation after the top, you know, six teams. And the Big 12 is going to take advantage of that with a lot of teams in the tournament and a lot of highly seeded teams in the tournament. Yeah, no, I think you think you hit it. Um, we will see, obviously, as we record here, Houston is playing Texas. Houston with an early lead, but uh, 
we will update you if anything changes and we have to update at the end of the show our, our priors on on that front so um can bounce back quick to the big east um we mentioned the providence thing providence right on the bubble and i think we've, we i think we have a relatively clear or we, we have a less clear hierarchy than i think we're starting to develop um after some of these recent results right like it felt like butler was starting to slip it felt like Xavier was starting to emerge. Maybe Providence was starting to slip. Seton Hall was starting to emerge. And now all of a sudden, you have these three, you know, stone-cold block tournament teams, UConn, Creighton, and Marquette. UConn in the mix for the number one overall seed um, just dominate Xavier, win by 43 on Sunday. You have St. John's, who's probably safe as a tournament team or the safest of the of the bowling teams they have a favorable schedule to end up too i think they have both their georgetown games left and one DePaul game they have two DePauls and two georgetowns oh, they have, oh. <laughs> so there's nothing else that should get them they have, they have two DePauls, two georgetowns they have uconn at home they have seton hall at home they have creighton at home like yeah, you know, at, at Butler and at Providence are two, and at Xavier, those are three of the easier road games you can. Have, you have so. to you have to win some 50-50 games, but like I think I feel pretty good that they're going to be fine. Like some of their wins have aged well. Like North Texas neutral has aged pretty well. Utah neutral has aged very well. Um, you know, I think I think if you probably feel best about St. John's from the group. Absolutely. But then you, just have, you just have all these weird resumes in this middle, right? You have Xavier, who is. 10 and 10, the metrics loved them until they got blown out by UConn. The metrics are still probably in favor of them compared to a 10 and 10 team. They will probably run into the quantity of losses issue. Um, but they do have two DePauls left, so that does help. Um, you have Providence, who's been like shaky since the Bryce Hopkins injury, but has now won three straight again, one at Seton Hall last week without Kadari Richmond. Um, you know, still work to do, obviously, uh, a lot of it. But if they can get to 19 and 12, 10 and 10 in the league, then I think they're going to be right there heading into conference tournament time. Maybe you need that 11th win, but we'll see. Um, Butler felt like they were running towards the towards the outs, and then they hold serve for a week against the bad teams and then beat Villanova in double overtime with a massive rally. I was like, oh, well, you know, Butler's 5-5. Five and five. They're kicking around. Yeah, they've got that Marquette road win, which is a monster. They've got a Boise win on the neutral that's pretty decent. Um, they have a Texas Tech win, who Texas Tech all, you know, now looks just incredible. Um, like, there's a lot to like there. Um, so they're somehow kind of back into the mix a little bit. I think they're probably more of an NIT team still. And then you have Villanova, who has, you know, arguably the best – Re, you know the most unique resume. Um, they got hurt by St. Joe's falling off. Now they're back to three quadrant three. Um, you know the, the very close losses to you know St. I don't know how close the St. Joe's one was, but their problem is is that St. Joe's and Drexel are legit good teams, and those losses look bad. Like Drexel is fifteen and seven, eight and one in the CA. St. Joe's is super talented. They have multiple, like, two potential two-way guys. But they're three and four in the A-10 because of Billy Lane. 96 and 10. Um, it, it's, 
it's not over for Villanova and Xavier. I know the records look bad. They have more favorable schedules. Uh, Villanova and Providence have two meetings left. That could be big bubble de- deciding games. Um, I think Seton Hall might have two Phil- Villanova as well. I have to check on that. Um, well, that's correct. Yep, two Seton Halls for Villanova, two Providences for Villanova. Uh, and then they, for for they are out of the Pauls, but they do have two doorsteps. For Butler, this this or I guess it's. Their next two games, I think it spans two weeks, um, at Creighton, at UConn. If you can get one of those, that's a season-changing win. I, 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 I've been telling everyone that for Wednesday's UConn-Providence game. Like, like UConn has to slip up. they got to look past someone eventually. Why not us? Let's get some hot shooting in here. Um, but when I received a text on Sunday afternoon, it said, wow. UConn is way is is all over Xavier, and I checked the score and it was thirty eight to seven. I had a pit in my stomach. Um, so I want to talk Villanova for a second, but well, let me do UConn first. I think those are the two big stories in the league right now. Is UConn is playing at like at an unbelievably elite level right now, and then Villanova potentially playing themselves out of the tournament for the second straight year. UConn, 18 and 2. They're, you know, two, three games since Clayton. They played a close roadie at Villanova, but they also blew out Creighton in a game that was not as close as the 62 to 48 appeared. I mean, that was a 20 point game with 10 minutes to go. And then they beat Xavier 99 to 56, just like completely dismantled. Um, like, the style points are all there. Defensively, they're just sucking the life out of people. Um, they've had some big-time shooting performances, 17 for 29 for three against Xavier. Um, you know, they've, they've made 10 or more threes in five of their last seven games. Like, is this the best team in the country? I mean, when they shoot like that, they, you know, 17 threes against Xavier, and they have... Klingon's coming along now. They were bringing him slow off the bench, back in the starting lineup. Um, I think he's taking over Purdue. I mean, they're they're supporting. Uh, obviously, Edie's the best player in the country, and therefore better than Klingon. But the UConn supporting cast around their big is much stronger than Purdue's, I think. Especially on, on the wings with Caravan and Castle. Castle's coming along. Doesn't shoot it as well as you'd like, but even when he's out of the game, Hassan Diara has been great this year coming off the bench. So they they have a ton of shooting, a ton of scoring. All three of their guards can make plays. They have great size, and then Klingon's a cheat code on on defense. So I think be, being number one is certainly reasonable. Um, Purdue has also been shakier recently, but. W- We'll see UConn as Providence, and they have at St. John's. So we'll see if they play down the competition. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that's that's wild is, like, like assuming UConn wins at St. John's over the weekend, and assuming they beat Providence. Sorry, Brad. Like, their, their three games after that are home Butler at Georgetown at DePaul. Like, they could, they could, they might not lose for a while. 
They haven't lost since Seton Hall. And, and that was the game that Klingon went down during the game. Right. Um, all right, Villanova. Where is the concern level right now? Like, It's got to be so high. Like, I infinite. Think, I was going to say, I, I don't think anyone necessarily thinks that Kyle Neptune's on the hot seat this year. But, like... They spent $3 million on their roster, and they're 11-9. And, and, like, no one is playing to expectations except for, like, Brendan Hawson and Mark Armstrong. Eric Dixon. Yeah. Dixon's been really good. Dixon's been better. I thought Dixon was going to be, like, relegated back to role player. But Ty- Tyler Burton, I don't know what happened to him. Bamba is not what he was at Washington State. Like, he looks bigger physically. The shooting hasn't been there. He shot the lights out at Washington State. The shooting hasn't been there. And he's, he's just very okay. And then Justin Moore coming back from injury hasn't been great. Um, I guess Lon, Longino's been fine. Hakeem Hart was relegated to role player status most of the year. Lance Ware can't get on the court half the time. He's a mess. Um, it's just... All these talented players put together, most of them are not playing up to their expectation. There's, there's, when when Villanova's on offense, you have no faith that they're going to score. It's all the back downs and the 15 dribbles and all that stuff. Like I, like Jay Wright gave it an air of credibility, but when this Kyle Neptune team is Doing these back downs, you just, you, you have no faith, and then they 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 take so many threes, they miss so many threes. Um, it it's a tough team to watch. So here's some context that I think is wild. And I know they finished strong last year. Villanova was 39th in Ken Palm offense last year. Right, like all we heard was like, man, the talent level stinks. Archie Diacono has to play. You know, Slater can't do anything. You know, this is terrible. This is no good. They're 39th in offense last year. This year, they're 60th. Like, I mean, just literally, just the concept, right, of we went out and we spent probably north of a million dollars for one year of TJ Bamba, Jordan Lon, or TJ Bamba, Tyler Burton, Hakeem Hart, Lance Ware. We spent a million. We we spent a million, probably a million five on that. What's the result? That I I think that they probably get like last four in the NCAA tournament. That they win enough games to just kind of squeak in. And the Bamba can. Bamba and Dixon can both come back next year, and I don't like where are they going at this point. If uh, Villanova really has this huge war chest, um, but yeah, the the performance, both individually and collectively, is very underwhelming. Um, and you know, like like you said, they were very close against UConn. They were close against Kansas State. Close in some of these Pennsylvania games they lost, but the Butler game is a brutal loss. I mean, they led. 
59 to 48 with under five minutes to play. But, you know, they, they how just... Is this, how, how is this possible? With five minutes left in the game, Villanova had given up 48 points to Butler. They gave up 88 points. They gave up 40 points in 15 minutes. Just no, nothing's easy. Nothing's pretty. Um, and, and if we're talking portal for them next year, if if everyone comes back who can, they need just like a best player available, and then like a starting power forward as well. But we'll see. I I think that they squeak in. I think I'm more worried about Seton Hall because who knows what's up with Kadari Richmond. Um, Providence was fortunate to not. Get Richmond. I don't. I don't care at this point. Hop, Hopkins is out. I'll. I'll take any any break I can get. Um, but without Richmond, that team just doesn't make a ton of sense. Dylan Adewuzu against Providence was 0 for 11 from the field. He's on like another level. Um, I know that game was a while ago. But crazy thing at the end of the game. Rich Barron was so tired. They stopped the game so he so he so he, he could sub out. Like, it wasn't a dead ball. He's just like, I'm tired. And they blew it dead so he can sit down. <laughs> Which, something that, that that I I would have to do during a game. But um, anything else here on the, the Big East? No, I think we're good. Um, why don't we pivot to the Pac-12, which had an, another kind of bizarro week. Arizona lost to Oregon State. And no one saw it. No, and it didn't exist. 11 o'clock on the back I didn't even know they were playing. It was a brutal Thursday slate, too. There was nothing going on. And then 11 o'clock Pac-12 network. Yeah, I I didn't see it. But couldn't imagine it was good. Look, I mean... Each Arizona State loss can individually be explained. Okay, Oregon State, yes, we have way more talent, but it's a sleepy road game, and we shot three for 14 from three, and they shot 12 for 20, and we lost the game. Okay, fine. And, oh, you know, we lost to Washington State. You know, it was a sleepy road game in Pullman. Um, you know, we just, you know, we were, we were okay, but we, you know, we, 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 we just didn't play that great. We shot seven for 24 from three, you know, under – under 30%, um, you know, right there at the end. And, you know, just, you know, we just didn't make free throws, just missed, missed eight free throws. You know, they made their free throws. We lost by three. Okay, well, you know, like, the, you know, we played Stanford, and Stanford's just okay. But, you know, Stanford shot 16 for 25 and three. All right, we lost the game. Right? Like, at some point, though, like, that can't happen three times in a month. Like, Washington State is somehow now, with like, a tournament team. But... I think that still feels somewhat fleeting. Um, like Washington State, like you can't lose three times in a month to like teams that probably aren't making the tournament. If you're Stan, you just or excuse me, if you're Arizona, you just can't. Um, I wish. Like I've seen everything from people citing Kylan Boswell's splits, wins and losses. I've seen Caleb Love stuff. I've seen that they got the two bigs. Follows too inconsistent. But then 
end of the day, like you look at this team, you still think they're really good. You still think they're really talented. But as you said, you just can't. You gotta stop losing. Stop it. Like you have, you have to play to your ability more. I saw people tweeting today about how Arizona beat Wisconsin by like a thousand points earlier. Um, but that feels like it was 15 years ago. Well, and their metrics never suffer because they just win. Like when they win, they win so dominating. Like they go on the road to Oregon, which is probably like a 50-50 game in the in, you know before the game, and they win by 10, and it's never close. I mean, they were up 15 with you know 10 minutes ago. You know, and they beat Utah by 20, and Colorado by 47, and they win. <laughs> you know, they beat Alabama by 13, and they beat Wisconsin by 25, and they beat like like they beat Morgan State by 60, like. You know, like, it's just, like, it's hard. Like, I, you don't know what to do with them. Because under the hood, you say, like, that's a good team. Just consistency-wise, it hasn't been there. And, again, it's hard to win on the road. We get that. But they play a tough schedule. I get that as well. But, like, you can't lose all these games. So I do think Boswell has been a concern. He just has not played great. Um, you know, the problem I have with Boswell, like, he's not a high-assist point guard. He's not like an elite shooter. I mean, he's making 39%, but like he's not like off movement. Like he's just catching and shooting. He's a good, you know, he's a talented defender, but he doesn't rebound. Like, like what does he really provide? Like, I think in a lot of ways, they're better when they're playing KJ Lewis and they're playing Caleb Love. Anderson more as a playmaker. That's fair, yeah. But I don't know how long it'll take him to get that, get there with that. And I think Boswell is a hard like, like he's such a big part of your future theoretically. That I don't know, but it's concerning. Um, around the rest of the league, like the bubble has gotten real hairy, you know. And again, and this is the same thing with the ACC, right? Rothstein keeps tweeting, "It's possible the ACC gets two bids." Like, no, it's not, because someone is going to win games, right? Like. They can't all lose all the 50-50 games because they're playing each other, right? Like, if you could play God, you could get the Pac-12 to one bid easily, but probably. But realistically, it's not going to happen. Right. The, the ACC has two. I mean, whether Clemson, how how we want to define Clemson, they have two or three NCAA tournament locks. Pac-12 is one NCAA tournament lock. Seriously. But like the odds that none of Oregon, Colorado, Washington State, Utah don't make the field very well. I mean, Utah is pretty well insulated, you know, similar to Arizona, where you know, they're they're like the six seed version of Arizona right now. So they just keep losing, but you, you take your step back. They have no bad losses. They have three quadrant one wins. You know, they beat now now they beat Wake Forest pre Afton Reed. They beat St. Mary's in their swoon, which I don't know what the hell to do with St. Mary's. And they beat BYU, you know, two computer trickers potentially with BYU and St. Mary's. Um, and then their only other win of note really is Washington State. We'll see coming up. They have Colorado at home um, in like a good lit, litmus test game for who's the second best team in the Pac-12. Um, and then they have Arizona at home. So we'll see what happens in their next two home games. That, that's a real opportunity to move the needle. 
and, and, and they've been playing without Lovering and without uh, Raleigh Worcester. I'm not sure if Davion Smith is still out. But. Yeah, Davion's they, back, but those they two got guys, blasted on Sunday. They got wide smoking. They lost by they lost to Washington State by 22, Washington by 25. Like, I, I was planning on watching the Washington game. I don't remember what game before it went long, and I just watched like five minutes of Utah, and I bailed. Um, they went from 21 to 40 in Ken Palm in a weekend, <laughs> which is not great, especially given their metrics were very good. But yeah, like I, you know, Colorado is weirdly like out of a lot of these fields despite having being top 25 in Ken Palm. Like that makes not a lot of sense to me. I know that they haven't actually accomplished much, but like it just feels like aesthetically like they're probably a tournament team. Washington State, you know, you you look up, you're like waiting for the the house of cards to collapse, but here they are. They've won five of six. They have resume wins, you know. Like they're they're kind of in the mix now, and uh, at least have you know some opportunity. Three straight coming up on the road at Washington, at Oregon State, at Oregon. We'll see how they handle that. But you know, kudos to Kyle Smith. I mean, look, I, Kyle Smith is a hard coach to truly evaluate because he's never actually really accomplished anything of note. Right? Like they never make the NCAA tournament. He's never made it as a coach. Like I understand why that's important. But also, Washington State is, like, maybe the hardest Power 5 job. Probably is. It won't even be a Power 5 job starting next year. They lose Muhammad Gay, TJ Bamba, Justin Powell, DJ Robin. DJ Robin starting at USC. Muhammad Gay, NBA slash G League. TJ Bamba, huge NIL guy. Justin Powell, G League. Four guys to the pros. You replace them with an Idaho transfer, a Division II transfer, uh, a kid who had cancer last year, a junior college transfer, and a freshman. Like, Joe Yesifu hasn't even done anything. He's been hurt. He wasn't even good to begin with. Like, like they've replaced all of that with, like, complete spare parts in our 15-6, and 6-4 six, six and four league. Like, that's remarkable, right? Like, when, when you ask me, like, who's going to win at the Paul? Like, what, Kyle Smith's going to win at the Paul. And Kyle Smith's never going to get hired at the ball. But Kyle Smith would win at the ball. And, like, win is relative. Like, if like if DePaul turned into what Washington State has been the last five years under Kyle Smith, would that be success? Absolutely. Uh, hell, yeah. Absolutely it would be success. DePaul can't win more than, like, three games in a year. At least they're covering now that they have Matt Brady. But... That's a bad, bad, bad for the Big East that they're covering now. But yeah, on uh, Washington State, it doesn't really uh, excite people when you're like, oh, they should be like a hundredth in Genpom and they're sixtieth. Uh, but when you do that every year with this much turnover and the the odds stacked against you, it's super impressive. I I wanted Providence to hire him last year. People made fun of me. People are still making fun of me. Um, big story of the Big Ten is that Ohio State is in complete freefall. You you were you were hot to this end quicker than I was. I really thought they would turn it. They've lost five of six, got handled by Nebraska on the road, then turned around and got worked by Northwestern, eighty-three to fifty-eight, trailed by like as many as I think thirty-five. I mean, this is the seventy-five. It was seventy-seven to forty-two, which is just wild. And then Ohio State finished on like a 12 2 run to make it a little bit more respectable. But the three and six, 
three and thirteen and seven overall. They're pretty far from the NCAA tournament now. But their Kempom is always good. Correct. And they'll have opportunities, obviously, right? Like, you know, the obituary on on Ohio State gets deleted if they beat Illinois and Iowa this week. How realistic is that? I don't know. But, you know, you win those two games, all of a sudden you have two quad one wins, you're back on the conversation, you, you beat Alabama early in the year. Here we go, here we go. They've won. They haven't won a home game, or they haven't won a road game. Excuse me. Since last last uh, since January first of twenty twenty three. Um, they won't win one until at least February second of twenty twenty four, and then they'd have to beat Iowa. Um, their schedule coming up is brutal. I mean, home Illinois and Iowa, both quad one games. Home Indiana, that's winnable. Home Maryland, Maryland's playing a lot better. At Wisconsin, home Purdue. Like, it's going to be hard. And it'll be interesting to see how bad they wind up and the dynamics of hiring and firing a coach. Because, number one, at 13 and seven, they're probably going to wind up over 500. Right, like they would have to really bottom out like last year to not be a 500 team. T rank has them 18 and 13, 8 and so 12 does, in the league. So does Kemba. So they're gonna be over 500. They're gonna miss the tournament. They're gonna be in the NIT by virtue of the new NIT rules. Ohio State is getting a new AD, Ross Bjork from Texas A&M. But Ross Bjork won't be on the job until July. So Ross could be involved in a man, in a men's basketball search, but like it's not his decision ultimately. Who gets hired? It's not his decision, ultimately, whether Chris Holtman gets fired. And Gene Smith, the athletic director at Ohio State, is who gave Chris Holtman this godlike contract extension. I mean, Chris Holtman, to fire Chris Holtman this year would cost Ohio State upwards of $14 million. That is a huge buyout. Like, that is a, that is a football that – is, that is a football buyout. That's not a basketball buyout. And Chris Holtman – He's not a terrible coach. Like, I don't quite understand why they look like this, because I don't think Chris Holman's a bad coach. Like, it's just bizarre to me that it hasn't worked. But it's not. I think at this point, like, it's – like, you can't deny that it's not working. So, is, like, it, are they, is it a sin in not going portal hard enough? Like, like was just getting Bonner Bonner too cute? But last year they went heavy portal, and they got, you know, McNeil and Likely and – you know, plugged in all these starters and it didn't work either. Tanner yeah. Holden. So I don't know. I just it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, I think Chris Holman's a go like we keep using DePaul. Like like Chris Holman coaching DePaul next year would be like a huge win for DePaul. Absolutely. But I mean, like he, he won more at Butler than than is fathomable. Yeah. So like look, I I just don't so the $14 million buyout's a big deal. Who's making the decision is a big deal. Now, $14 million is not necessarily $14 million. They're, you know, it has an offset clause like most buyouts. If you offset, you know, if you, you know, if you, if you buy out a coach at $14 million, you can kind of assume, like, all right, like, he's going to take a job sometime in the next four years. But we were talking about this, Brad. Like, like let's say DePaul comes around and says, like, Chris Holtman, like, you got fired. You know, we'd love to hire. If you're Chris Holtman, 
you would have to be like one of the biggest sickos alive to say, I'm making three million if I coach the Paul, I'm making three million if I sit on my couch, I'm choosing coaching the Paul. The only reason you would do that was to like stay in the consciousness. Correct. But then if you failed to Paul, you might be done. I mean, I'm sure you, you you could go back and coach, you know, like the Gardner Webb level, but um in terms of being a big time college, you know, like kind of like Laval Jordan, like is 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 he ever gonna get a job again? Like he he, he probably could have had one right away after getting fired from Butler, but now he's kind of off the board. It'll be interesting. Um I think the other thing with Holtman would be, you know, is there a level of would would he agree to negotiate down his buyout in order to take a job? Like I don't think DePaul would be this job, but like if Central Florida wanted to hire, him. and it was like, well, I can't leave, you know, would Ohio State be like, fine, like take, we'll fire you, you take five million dollars, and I get to go start fresh, or like he knows he's getting fired. He knows it's a job he wants. He negotiates it down so he can co- he gets a lump sum and then gets to go get paid. Because if he takes a lump sum, like if he takes five million dollars, the offset goes away. So, but I don't know. It'll be interesting. I, mean, I I I think it's more likely today that Ohio State opens than Michigan, and I think that's a wild thing. I think actually it's, it might be the most likely job to open in the Big Ten. Like I, I think Minnesota has a little bit lo- a little bit more security. I don't know that it's a lock that Minnesota doesn't open, but I think Minnesota is like Minnesota has now, you know, has bounced back. They're four and five in the league. They'll probably wind up seven and thirteen, eight and twelve. That probably will be perceived as enough of an improvement to give him another year. I wouldn't personally, but like that was his guy, right? Like the AD Mark Coyle made this higher. I don't think he's gonna I think he's gonna go down on the I think he's going to go down with the ship on this one. But, like, who do you even hire if you're Ohio State? Or even Michigan? Like, Sean Miller, I guess? Or, or, or Sean Miller. You mentioned Greg, Greg McDermott. I mentioned to you Greg McDermott was offered by Ohio State the first time around. He said, oh, it's a different AD. But, like, it'd still be a good idea. Maybe this AD should uh, remember what the previous one did. But Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people will throw along, like, T.J. Atzelberg. Is there a reason he would want to get out of the Big 12 just because the Big 10 is more stable? Or Yeah, I don't know. I think it'd be money. I mean, there's a lot of money out there at Ohio State. But who would Iowa State get? A Greg McDermott reunion? I love the carousel. It seems like your guy Carm has avoided the carousel. I saw the samurai uh, guy said that the the buyout's too big. He's gonna get another another year. I don't know that samurai said that. He screenshotted some like Sienna fan said that. Oh, maybe I missed it. I mean, I've been kind of off Twitter today. Either way, get Carm in the portal. This has been it's been a wild situation in that. There has been a lot of, like, like, Sienna, like, 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 Sienna is seemingly trying to kangaroo court out a coach who has double as many winning seasons, or double as many um, championships as losing seasons. 
And like every Sienna fan is okay with it. Like there's no, there's not a single defender. And this and is like, his first bad season. Every single national media, every single national person, Samurai, Low Major Madness, you know, myself, like everyone who like has opined about it is like, yeah, it's kind of crazy that they're doing this. Like, even like some people I DM with, talk to, coaches, whatever. It's kind of crazy that they're doing this. They're just going to like, they, they might just like fire this guy. And then like the Sienna fans are like, well, yeah, but you don't understand. It's like, no, no, I do. Like, I, 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 I live it. Like, it's, it's, I'm with, I'm with you guys. Um, but speaking of carousel, just quickly here, I think, I, I think the Ohio State win solidifies me. Um, the Ohio State win solidifies me as back being in like the, are we sure Chris Collins can't get Louisville? I mean, I didn't think that Northwestern was going to be very good this year. I thought they'd be NIT. I think they're pretty good. Their metrics still stink. Ken Palm hates them. I did watch some of that DePaul game that they struggled. I watched a lot of the Chicago State game that they lost, obviously. Um, But they're in a good spot. I mean, Nebraska has a much tougher schedule. They're in in, in kind of a shaky spot, but... um, for, for you know, we we were talking about Kyle Smith. I mean, Chris Collins just led a team that never went to the NCAA tournament now to three NCAA tournaments, probably. It's and, crazy. And, and, and he won games not, both years. And I'm still not convinced he's a very good coach. Like, maybe I just have to, like, admit that I'm wrong, I guess. I don't know. It's just bizarre. Like, it's boo. I mean, he's done a great job. Like, he's done a great job the last few years. I give him a lot of like I, I don't know. Like it would be interesting to see like what happened. Would he like like would he would he be interested in Ohio State? Could he get Ohio State? Again, like we don't think he's a good coach, but like you have to acknowledge what he's done. But like if I if I were an Ohio State fan and you told me we're gonna hire Chris Collins, I'd be like, uh. Well, this is. Are we sure? So I think this is part of the problem. Um. So. I'm not sure that there's, like, any slam-dunk candidates for any of these jobs, especially once you start considering, like, the people themselves, right? got to be sh- – Sean, Sean Miller is a slam-dunk, and I, th- I think Greg, Greg McDermott's a slam-dunk, too, but – Okay, for Ohio State. Uh, but, but Sean Miller's a slam-dunk while considering the fact that Sean Miller is, like, tied to bad shit in the past. Right, I mean, like, Louisville's – Probably not going to look at him because Chris Mack came to Xavier, but that's, like, insane. Came from Xavier, but... Yeah. But, like, like, is Greg McDermott, like, the no-brainer hire at Louisville? Like, who's the no-brainer hire at Louisville? Moss is doing terribly. Jerome Tang is, like... But this is... I mean, talk about one bad year, like, for Carm and stuff. Like, Moss was in the Sweet 16 last year. No, I agree with that, but I don't think he's a slam dunk at Louisville. I mean, there is a a ton of upward mobility in that league. No, I'm not saying he couldn't win. I'm just saying, like, I don't think any of these fits feel natural, is my point. The uh, Jerome Tang one did, but he's kind of getting weirder by the day with all the sign stealing. and. Oh, my God. He's seeing ghosts out there, man. Um, 
But that's okay. Musk wants to leave. I, I, I saw that today on Twitter. Then who gets Arkansas? You know, that's it. Okay, then who gets Ole Miss? I, I guess Will Ole Miss Wade. is low enough. But who is it? Will Wade. Okay. Figure it out. That was easy. Ohio State though is it, it, it is a tough one certainly. Um, it, and even DePaul because like everyone's showing interest now, but when it comes down to it, are you going to want to coach that team with no NIL, a cursed history, and kind of a tough upward mobility in the Big East, kind of? Yes. Um, the only league power leagues we haven't hit yet are the SEC and ACC. Can we just hop to Memphis really quick? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. I don't think they, I should say any of those leagues, so we can skip them. They they need to do better PR work for Memphis. Like, why aren't they just pushing out that like all this happened once Caleb Mills was out for the season? Which is funny because Caleb Mills wasn't even good, and that's what we would say. But like that would be the narrative, yeah. Like right. every every minute of every broadcast for Providence, they're showing Bryce Hopkins, they're showing his stats, they're showing. His picture with crutches are showing, you know, they are just pounding it to you. This province team should be better because Bryce Hopkins is out. I never hear anyone talk about Caleb Mills being out. Or that Jordan Brown left the team and came back or whatever the hell happened there. I just kind of like Penny's lost him. They can't play anymore. And, I mean, they've lost three straight games after playing with fire the first half of the um, first half of the, the American Conference schedule. And the worst part about it is you look at their schedule, and by being in the American, I mean, they have a soft schedule, which is a bad thing because it's more opportunities to slip up. They got Rice and Wichita State next. Now, right. they have both the, their Florida Atlanta games, and they have, I believe, North Texas and SMU on the road. So I guess that's opportunities to move the needle positively. But at this point, you just got to stop the bleeding. Right. Their next four games are all quad three or four. Home Rice, home Wichita, at Temple, home Tulane. Like, if they lose any of those games, like, if they lose two of those games, they're out of the tournament. If they lose one of those games, they're, like, feeling it already. And then Florida Atlantic escaped again, too. I, if they're a sixth seed and Providence is 11, I'm going to do 15 backflips. I mean, in the bracket that... Y- you guys put out field field 68. I was just jealous of where they had Nebraska, where they were playing Utah State, and then the winner would play Dayton or or, or, or the 14 seed. You hate the mid majors. And then Brad the winner would play Kansas as a two seed. Like oh. Brad is such a mid major hater. It's unbelievable. I'm not scared of any of the mid major teams except maybe New, New Mexico, who I watched bludgeon Nevada. They're a wagon. <laughs> They're so good. The Mount, Mountain West six bid update is is actually going okay because um, uh, Colorado State and Nevada had the best non cons and they're having the worst cons. But everyone's seemingly just selling Nevada. Yes. I don't know if that's just because they don't want to have six teams on their mock mock bracket anymore or what. But um, they they do have the at at Washington and the neutral TCU wins in the non league. 
And then the A10 is fighting to maybe get a second bid. I still don't think they're really getting one. But at some point, like we're probably gonna have to acknowledge that Richmond is a eight nine seven nine elite. Hey, we, I said last week I thought they were gonna be god awful. I think I put them like twelfth or thirteenth in the preseason. Yeah, I they lost that. Tyler Burton, and they're they're rolling. They're great. They, were, they beat Dayton on Saturday. Huge win. Did great job defensively. I mean, how about this? Through 30 minutes, they had given up 35 points to Dayton. Completely shut down Deron Holmes. I think somewhat exposed Dayton's lack of like true creation in their backcourt. Um, I think Dayton's fine. Dayton's you know certainly a tournament team. I don't think Richmond can really get an at large, but like there's a world where they're in the mix. They just gotta like they won the same all boat as like Grand Canyon and Indiana State and all these teams. Um, just stop losing, just win every game. Right. Well, then, that's what then we'll see. What I was gonna say was like, you're doing all this for like the out from the outlaws conversation to a like like Richmond is basically all these games are 50-50 games. Like Loyola Chicago was a 58-56 game. Um, Loyola had a shot to win it late, didn't make it. But it was 52 to 51 with four minutes to go, right? So Richmond has had one one, one game like that. Um, then they played George Mason. That game was relatively close down the stretch, 69-63 with four minutes, or 69-66 with three minutes to go. And then they played, um, you know, Dayton. They were pretty much in control a lot of it, but, like, you know, they, they kept the scoring down, but, like, again, five minutes to go, 52-47 Richmond. Um, they played against Davidson and went to overtime, right? Like, you piece together four, five, six, 50-50 wins in a row. Duquesne, 63-61, won it at the, you know, buzzer, basically. Like, at some point, like, it's easier to win the conference tournament. <laughs> like, Right, so T-Rank has them with a 16% chance to win the A-10, and then, like, a 2.2% chance to get an auto bid. Oh, sorry, a, a, at, at-large bid. Um, has them going 15-3 and three in the league. But, like, other... So they have the Dayton home win, and they have UNLV on a neutral, which is shaky. Charlotte at home. Bonnie's at home. George Mason at home. At Duquesne, right? So they have all the mid-tier A10 wins. In the non-con, they have UNLV, um, and the and their losses aren't crazy. That's 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 their whole profile, right? They lost at Northern Iowa, at Wichita, uh, at Boston College, and a neutral Colorado and Florida. So, but there's quite the quite the tier. Basically, 30 spots, 30, 30 to 40 spots. Richmond, 81. St. Bonaventure, 82. VCU, 91. UMass, 93. St. Joe's, 96. George Mason, 99. Duquesne, 103. Loyola, 123. Davidson, 127. All those teams are essentially the same. 
Um, it has been very, very challenging to separate these Atlantic 10 teams. And like Loyola, to give them credit, they've found a way to win a lot of these close games so far. Now, can they maintain it? We'll see. But, you know, Fordham, four-point win, UMass one, St. Joe's three. You look at the other side. I mean, UMass, UMass has been the most unlucky team in the country. I mean, got beat two straight losses, Loyola and St. Joe's. They lost essentially at the buzzer. They gave up two offensive rebounds in both games to give up a bucket and the final possession to lose the game. They lost to Dayton by four in a game that was like tied with a minute, you know, with with a minute to go. And to make matters worse in that game, UMass did not have Matt Cross late in the game because he like got a tooth knocked out or whatever. Um, they lost to Georgia Tech on a ridiculous game where they were like up by they were up by nine with five minutes to go and lost the game. And they even, you know, even dating back to the non-conference, they lost, you know, before that, they lost to Harvard in overtime. And again, they led most of the way, and they shot 10 for 25 at the free throw line, which is just, like, unbelievable. Um, Like, UMass, to me, like, statistically, they're the team that I feel like I'm most scared of. Like, I'm not, I like Loyola. I'm not scared of Loyola. I'm not scared of Richmond. But Loyola and Richmond have found a way to win the games. And... UMass has come up short. Joe's has come up short. So it'll be interesting to see if those maintain or if they kind of peter out. I mean, we're we're, we're talking about like a formational month, really. For I actually think I think that for the two that this applies most to is for um, Loyola and St. Joe's. Like Billy Lang is one good month away from like being right back, and you know one of the best teams in the league, and like solidifying his future a little bit. And another and, and a bad month for me. Fire. Drew Valentine is a month away from like being the hot name on the carousel, and also a month away from being like entering next year. Yeah, I think I know. Uh, with DePaul being in the same city, people are pushing Drew there. But yeah, I want to see more from Loyola. And I, I mean, this is going to be a pretty wide open tournament. I, I know Dayton uh, has the metrics. They have the tournament resume, but even from, from from when watching them play St. John's and play Ohio State in that early game, like they 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 feel like an eight nine seed quality wise. They don't feel like a three seed. Um, but I saw Seth Byrne put this on Twitter earlier. I, I I honestly don't know the answer. Like, would would you prefer that the tournament is seeded based on? Resume or seated on versus performance, you know, like Ken Palm or whatever. Right. Well, Seth's idea, I believe, I believe Seth thinks that the way it should be done is that it should be a wins above bubble for get in. getting in and then just straight Ken Palm proceeding. Correct. Which I, I understand that that's the most fair way to do it to get the best tournament. Like that makes logical sense to me. But it would just feel so weird for like Dayton to have you know this crazy resume and then be like, oh, okay. Well, 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 I guess Dayton's metrics are so good. Um, 
I guess like it, it's like Memphis didn't fall off, and it's like all right, Memphis, now you're gonna be a 14 seed behind Grand Canyon and Indiana State and everybody, despite having all these quadrant one wins. But that just feels so weird. It feels too different for, for me, but I acknowledge that it works the other way too, right? When the when when St. Mary's, who's 14th in T rank, is going to be like a 10 seed, and then in the second round they're playing two seed, I don't know, Kansas or something. Kansas is not really playing a 10 seed. I I I certainly understand that. It just feels weird to throw out the wins and losses like that. Well, I will say, the bracketologists do say that that's some of how it's done. The resume metrics are more important for getting in, and the efficiency metrics are more important for the seeding. But that's not a precise science, because we know that the committee just does whatever the hell they want. There's also, like, if I were on the committee, right, if I'm an athletic director... And I get this call that I get to be on the selection committee. I, I'm not a basketball guy, probably, right? You know, I'm dealing with all all the other sports. I'm not watching all these games, right? Wouldn't the first thing you do would be to check what Joe Lenardi and everyone's putting out there to make sure that you're on their wavelength? I think it's more likely that the bracketologists think they're predicting the committee when really they're influencing the committee. It's like an echo chamber. Like, you'd be crazy not to. Like, if you were an AD and you don't, you couldn't name a single player on Providence, right? You're the AD of Weber State or something. You're going in there blind. You're not going to, like, study up. Maybe this is why it takes so long to. Maybe this is why it takes so long for them to do seating for like three days. They're just studying up. Like, well, Joe Lenardi has this, and Lucas Harkins has this. But... I don't know. That that's just me. Anyway, the bracketology is the, the wild. I mean, we, we we can't get Clemson and Utah down fast enough. They're just they're stuck. And and, and Memphis has finally un un unwedged themselves from the from the top half of the bracket. It it just took three straight terrible losses to to do so. But I do feel bad for Clemson because Clemson actually played well enough to win on the road at Duke and just kind of couldn't quite get the get get over the hump and finish it. I saw that last play. Like, I guess it's a foul, but like, it it feels like it's such a coin flip whether the refs call some something like that or not. That's it, 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 it's like not even worth evaluating because half the time the refs swallow their whistle anyway. Well, what I was gonna say was like, spun the opposite way. I can't imagine that Duke would get or that that, Clem, that Duke would get called for that foul. I can't, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I will say I have a, I have a big ref beef. The referees, you know, 
I don't remember if it was like one of the formal points of emphasis or what, but for a couple of years there, the referees basically like they stopped you from being able to jump into the shooter or jump into the defender and get a foul on a on a, on a jump shot. Um, they even were paying attention to like the guys who kicked their feet out, right? This year, they have completely gone the opposite direction. I mean, there are just some absolutely miserable calls on these three-point shots. Shots that have no chance. I mean, this is kind of what happened with Nelly Davis in the uh, Tulane game for FAU. Um, it happened in the Memphis UAB game the other day. Um, it has happened. I just feel like I'm watching way more fouls on three-point and it's a lot of like, oh, you know, his legs got tripped. He didn't have space to land. The, the, the Memphis one was most egregious. Ashton Hardaway jumped sideways to shoot a three. Got called. He drew the foul. And it was a complete bailout. The only reason he was shooting was to try to draw the foul. Um, like, we've, we've completely lost the plot on that one. Like, everybody's complaining about, oh, the coaches are on the floor. We need a technical for that. No, no, no. We need to get rid of these horrific calls. Um, the three things I wanted to actually start the show with this earlier in the week, but I completely forgot. The three things that everyone seems to care about that I just c- cannot bring myself to care at all. One is the refs. Like, I have no idea who any of the refs are. I think I know Teddy Valentine if I saw him. But, like, all you see on Twitter is, oh, James Breeding, oh, Evan Evan Burroughs, this guy, that guy. I couldn't pick any of them out of a lineup. I couldn't match name to face for any of them. I have no idea who the good refs are, who the bad refs are. I have, I bet I, I would recognize some of their faces. Like, okay, if I saw that guy on my TV wearing the ref shirt, I'd be like, okay, I, I think I've seen that college basketball ref before. <laughs> but I don't know any of this. I guess Ken Palm ranks the refs. I don't know how he ranks the refs. I think it's by, like number of games done. I have no idea. You would mention, I think that that they literally just fly all fly all over the country just cashing checks every day. Every day, referee wakes up in the morning, goes to the airport, flies somewhere, rents a car, drives to the game, turns around, goes to the hotel, wakes up in the morning, flies another place. It's a wild existence. Yeah, so I, I I don't know who a, any of these people are, and then. Jerseys, I do not give a flying fuck what color we're wearing. I I, I would prefer the always be white at home, uh, but that doesn't even happen all the time anymore. Uh, but oh, we got the alternates. Oh, this alternate looks bad. Oh, this that. Oh, the trim on this is bad. The n- numerals are bad. I have never put an ounce of thought into a team's jersey, um, in their alternates or any of that. And thirdly. The jersey numbers. I think I could probably give you the numbers of the Providence guys. I could not give you a single number of a non-Providence player. What and number? I see a lot of fans on Twitter when they're talking negatively about a guy on their team. They'll, they'll, they'll just say the number. They are 25 really blew that defensive assignment. I guess to protect in case them or their family members searches their name on Twitter. Correct, correct. Um, but I have no idea who these people are talking about. I have to go look at the roster. Like, oh, they're talking about Jay Heath. Okay. Um, anyway. Um, did, are you with me on those? So, 
I think jerseys are cool, but like I don't have like strong feelings about like trim or whatever. Um, the referees, I've started to pick up on it a little bit in that like because I do a lot of games in the same region and refs tend to say regionally, like you'll start to recognize guys after a while, but like I don't necessarily have strong opinions of like, oh man, like when Jerry like like the people who have work like coaches do. Coaches have strong opinions about certain guys because they have to have like working relationships. But like I don't necessarily I don't sit around being like, oh man, like, you know, we're watching Jeffrey Anderson, like he's gonna be a rough night. Yeah, I have no idea. No idea. Um, and then the numbers thing, I think it goes kind of back and forth for me. Like, I'm watching Texas on the screen right now. Like, if you ask me, like, what number... Like, there are certain numbers I would know. Like, like, if you ask me, like, what number Caden Shedrick is, I would have no idea. But if you ask me, like... Like, randomly, I would know what Shendell Weavers is. He wears number two. I can't even think right now what Josh Aduro's number is. I have no idea. <laughs> I know Devin Carter's what twenty two. Twenty two, yeah. Corey Floyd's fourteen. Castro thirty. Garway's three. I don't know Ticket. I don't know Oduro. Do you know Pierre? One. Yeah. Um. Who else is there? Oh, uh, Rich Barron is what fifteen. No, he's ten. Ten. Josh Oduro is thirteen. Okay. Ticket zero. Ticket is zero. Yeah. All right. I got that one. Um, Santoro and Delorier, who the hell knows? I can't even I can't even pick out Delorier and Santoro out of the lineup. I don't know who which one is which. How about Bunka? I, I saw on Twitter you're, you're supposed to pronounce it Bunk like Bunka instead of Bunk. Uh, but he is enormous. I don't know if you saw the picture in the locker room after the game. He's, He's like 15 inches taller than everybody. Please, please be Zach Eady. Poor, poor Rafael Castro is going to be out on the street begging for coins. Hey, maybe salary cap-wise, they'll have to bring him back. I need him in the portal. Like, those are the types of guys you need in the portal. Like, good players. Like, like I was thinking about this the other day with Syracuse. Like, I'm obsessed with the concept of, like, Quidier Copeland being in the transfer. I don't think he will, but I think Justin Taylor and Benny Williams could. I I guess Benny Williams has had like uh, uh Benny Williams had like in-game fits where he's like not getting the playing time he wants and he storms off to the locker room mid-game. Just a bizarre situation, man. Just bizarre. How about uh, obvious bad get Kyle Cuff has not gone well. He plays a little bit and he can shoot, but I mean, he's shooting 26% for three. He he He's a shooter. It, it was funny. I, I was watching, I don't know which ACC game it was, but they were, they were doing halftime highlights, and Jim Beheim was on the call for the halftime highlights of the Syracuse buzzer beater against Miami. And he's narrating that last play, and he's like, and he kicks it to not a very good shooter, and it goes in. That was how Jim Beheim described Quadier Copeland making a game-winning three-pointer. Jim is just just angry all the time, man. Just 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 hates life. He um he admitted on a field of 68, which I was surprised at that you shouldn't play zone at 
zone zone anymore as your primary defense. Too many shooters. Um, yeah, Syracuse, Syracuse is, is is in a weird spot where, including Chance Westry, they have like ten rotation players, all of whom can come back next year. Plus, they have two good recruits coming in, like really good recruits coming in. Um, so people are going to have to leave, and it's not a hundred percent clear who's actually going to be leaving. I should note that Houston is now down six to Texas. Houston is down six right now. Wow. So Texas just like went on like a little flurry. So we'll see. Um, anything else? Um, let's let's give it a, another week on the ACC. I think we'll have more clarity next yes. week. Then I guess SEC too. I did see that Ole Miss's closing schedule is very difficult, but a lot of it's at home, and their record is pretty enough to withstand a few losses. So, opportunity awaits. Home game tomorrow night against Mississippi State. That kind of feels like a game you have to have. Yeah. All right. Well, we will see you all next week, hopefully after a slightly less uh, wild week of college basketball Twitter. Of drama, um, yeah. Last week, we spent a lot of time talking about Tony Selva, who got fired the next day. So we'll see if anything similar transpires this week. But appreciate y'all. See you, Chris Holtman. You're done. Cooked. All right. See you later, folks.